COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. Our hearts will never be the same after hearing a man beg for his life, calling out in desperation for his dead mother, and finally succumbing to the weight of American law enforcement. This brazen eight minute and 46 seconds snuffing out of George Floyd's life embodies the utter expendability of black life. The outpouring of anger and grief over the vicious murder of George Floyd was heightened by the bloodletting that preceded it. The police killing of EMT Breonna Taylor shot eight times in the dead of night by home invaders licensed by a badge to kill with impunity. Taylor's death was not captured for the world to see, nor was it elevated by the national media. Her life was taken on March 13th, but her death was nearly forgotten until activists insisted that we all say her name in the uprisings that swept the nation. All of this, the targeted lethality of white supremacy, coupled and manifested with the disproportionate effects of the virus that's already claimed over 100,000 lives, marks this as the red summer of 2020, a summer of death and destruction, a summer that paradoxically could quite possibly promise rebirth and redemption. At least for now, a social movement is rising up. Social movement historians can't ever really tell us what the watershed moments will be that will galvanize the masses of people to denounce the status quo with an intention never to go back to normal. Now, time will tell whether this is such a moment. If it is, history may one day tell the story of how this too is a possibility that COVID laid bare, exposing for everyone to see the foundational logic of black bodies essential yet expendable role in American society. Just as there's a thin line separating the killer from those who allow the killer to kill, there's a thin line between COVID's ravages and a society that casually observes the carnage and declares itself ready to move on. On this emergency episode of Under the Black Light, I was honored to speak with five incredible panelists. 
Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, principal at Black Futures Lab, and special projects director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Robin D.G. Kelly, a professor of American history at UCLA and the author of Race Rebels, Culture, Politics, and the Black Working Class, and Freedom Dreams, the Black Radical Imagination. Maria Moore, a member of the Say Her Name Family Network, and the sister of Kayla Moore, a Black transgender woman killed by Berkeley police in 2013. Devin Carbato, a prominent legal scholar in critical race studies and professor at UCLA School of Law. And finally, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. I was especially grateful to General Ellison for coming on to Blacklight in light of major developments that were taking place in Minnesota since he'd agreed to come on. In the days leading up to our conversation, the oversight of the case against the officers involved in George Floyd's death had been placed under General Ellison's office. And on the day we recorded the episode, charges had been amended against Derek Chauvin, increasing his charge to second degree murder, and new charges were brought against the three officers involved in Floyd's death. In light of the change context, we asked General Ellison to speak with us for a few moments before going on to the rest of the panel. I began by asking him what was front and center in his mind as he begins this journey for justice under the black light while the whole world is watching. Well, what's front and center in my mind is building a case where every link in the prosecutorial chain is very, very strong that can be compelling to a jury. Uh, The fact is, is that, you know, uh, these cases are uh, really intense. We know Walter Scott, his uh, state case ended in a hung jury. We know Philando Castile, those that the defendants were acquitted, uh, who shot him right there in suburbs of St. Paul. Of course, Freddie Gray, uh, there was never any conviction in that case. Now there might be other cases, Kim, that you've studied It is difficult, but it's not impossible. In fact, an officer got convicted of murder in Minnesota uh, within the last few years. Now it is an interesting case because um, the defendant was a black Somali immigrant on the Minneapolis Police Department who shot a white woman. Now I would submit that Mohammed Noor should have been prosecuted for what he did. The problem is not that he was prosecuted, problem is other people who've acted similarly never were. So we're up against, you know, we're up against it, but it's not a battle that we can't overcome. We got to be tight. We got to be clear. We got to be strong. We got to be compelling. We got to tell the right story. Uh, and we got to really humanize George Floyd. I'm so glad that we were able to escape the usual smear that happens to people who are victims in cases like this. We all know about People trying to muddy up Trayvon Martin and muddy up uh, Eric Garner. You know, we've actually gone further in this case than than often happens. You know, we've got charges against the uh, responsible individuals and we're plowing forward with that investigation. And just to mark how unusual it is that the police officers were, were fired. Right. And um, I just wonder, as, as we are waiting to see how the, the wheels of justice will turn in this case, and while you're doing the hard work of trying to seek justice in a legal system that is surely an imperfect one, 
what is it that you hope the wider community of those who are sickened by this kind of violence should be doing? Where, where should the energies be directed at this moment? This is an excellent question, and I really thank you for asking me that, because there is a lot of things to do besides think about only this case. We want people to support the case. We want to keep information in front of people. But look, you know, in every city, in every county in America, there needs to be an improvement in police community relationships. Let's just start with uh, the fact that so, like, there's a very high percentage of officer-involved killings and, and deadly force encounters with police uh, where the person is in a mental health crisis or a chemical health crisis. What if we talked about dual responses where we would have people, uh, officers go out with mental health professionals to really help make sure everybody lives? What if we understood that um, de-escalation, anti-racism training, what if we empowered the chiefs much more and really held them accountable for who was on their department? Of course, you know, there needs to be real reform in the, in the unions. You know, I'm a pro-union person. I, I, I never met a union I didn't like, except the Minneapolis Police Federation, which uh, is a very odd union because, you know, if you got a nurse, imagine a nurse's union that hated the patients, <laughs> right? And yeah. mistreated them and abused them systematically. You know, so this particular case, uh, there's no, we need to reform the relationship between the Federation because the president acts like an alternative chief um, and he's not. Yeah, we, we, saw, we saw a clip of him basically saying that uh, their union is pro-Trump because he removes the handcuffs. Uh, of the federal, uh, you know, sort of the investigations that were done by the Justice Department. They see the investigations into civil rights violations as handcuffs. This, right. this is the, the police union head saying this. Very true. Very true. So, I mean, for example, there has not been one pattern and practice lawsuit brought uh, by the Trump administration since he got in office. And in fact, they tried to roll him back in the city of Chicago and in other places. But there's so many cities that need these kind of um, consent decrees that require that they do reforms. And so, I mean, there's a lot to be done. I think we need to do it. And I would say, if you don't mind me going one more, one more point, Kim, well, don't forget about the guys in the, in the Starbucks. Or don't forget about the uh, folks who are, you know, the, the, the civilians who call the police on black people just doing normal stuff all the time. These people are going to be asked to be on the jury. This is the jury pool. That's real. I mean, it's very That's important real. that we that we have really some real engagement at the faith community level, at the job level, the neighborhood level, and say, why do you think I'm out to harm you or I don't belong here or that you're deputized to control my behavior when I'm doing nothing but looking at birds, you know, and you're violating the leash law, and yet you know you can call the police on me and claim that I was doing something to you and you know what the likely consequence of that will be. So, I mean, we need to get local on this uh, and there's a lot of work for all of us to do. And we so appreciate you letting us know what we can do and, and what we should be doing. You know, you, you, uh, you sort of uh, referred to the doing something while black, you know, kind of frame where you're gonna be doing uh, prosecuting while black. That's right. Uh, that's the thing that's next. And I'm sure, I'm sure even as we speak, there are people who are gearing up to, to make a claim that you should recuse yourself 
from any role in this uh, because of your history of being a racial justice advocate. Judges like A. Leon Higginbotham were frequently uh, asked to recuse themselves in cases uh, around which they said that history makes, makes them biased. So just getting ahead of it, knowing it's coming, what do you say to that? Well, of course, it's ridiculous, but that doesn't stop people from making ridiculous charges. I mean, the bottom line is, I have at all times acted professionally in accordance with the ethical requirements of the job. Uh, I have not commented about evidence. I have not commented uh, about any matter that I am required to stay quiet about. Uh, I have uh, maintained a, a very strong standard and maintained it among my staff. So they, look, they're gonna come my way, but here's the thing, you know, these people have been coming after me so long that they've, I'm not, I have no fear of them, right? I mean, I mean, at some point, you know, you get used to the bully, right? So Sean Hannity, he says, oh, Ellison shouldn't be on this case. Oh, so Whatever, it's happened dude. already, happened already. Yeah, 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 it's already happened. But man, I have no concerns about this guy. We know they're gonna say a lot of stuff. They're gonna bring up that I failed my eighth grade spelling test. They're gonna, <laughs> you, know, you know, that's how they roll, you know? But you know what, we're not gonna back down. We're gonna insist on justice. You know, and as I told my staff, we're going to bring the highest ethical charges we can bring. We're not going to charge something we don't have any facts to support, but we're going to bring the charges on every case where there's a where there's factual basis and legal support for that charge. We're not going to undercharge it for any particular reason. We're seeking out justice, and that is just the way that it is. Well, General Ellison, before you leave, um, I guess my last question is, at, at some point, this moment will be part of history. There will be a story that will be told about this. Um, what's your hope about what this story will be? I hope that this is an inflection point where we begin to meaningfully balance the scales of justice. You know, look, African-Americans uh, in captivity for 243 years, I marked the end of Jim Crow's 1965 Voting Rights Act, so legal state-sponsored second-class citizenship for another 100 years. There's only been 55 years of anything else, and they've been marked by stark disparities in every facet of American life. Policing, incarceration, healthcare, um, you know, housing, everything, everything. And um, we've got to change this. We have a right to live in liberty and justice for all like anyone and this may be a moment where we can really really set a new course you know and i hope that it is and and i hope that people don't let the urgency of the moment fade and that they dig in for the long term and that they get involved and that they you know really take uh voting and things like that really seriously people say to me well voting what does voting ever do i said well you know what if voting is no big deal then why are they always trying to suppress your vote you know, and so I hope that this is an inflection point for change that we can look back on and say, you know what, that tragic thing happened to George Floyd. It was awful. But you know what, we laced up our shoes, we came together in human solidarity, all colors, all cultures, all faiths, and we said we're going to write a new chapter of justice in America. That's what I hope we got right in, right in front of us. Well, thank you so much, General Ellison. Your public service in these times is such a beacon of hope for so many of us. We appreciate you and we appreciate you being here. Uh, be safe, be well, and be strong. Bye-bye.
So thank you all again for joining us this evening. Let's get started. I want to turn first to Alicia and talk about Black Lives Matter then and now. So seven years ago, three Black women launched an organizing effort under the declaration, the aspiration that Black Lives Matter. And of course, you were one of them, along with Opal Tometi and Patrice Con Colors. So we're here again, thousands of people in the streets protesting senseless deaths of George Floyd coming at the heels of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. I can only imagine a, a sense of frustration that you might be having that once again, we're facing the same lethality that took the lives of Mike Brown, Tanisha Anderson, Eric Garner, Corinne Gaines, the list goes on and on. But beyond the frustration, is there more that you're sitting with right now? Absolutely, and thank you, Kim. I'm so honored to be able to take part in this conversation at this moment. You know, it has been seven years, and this week has been really surreal in a lot of ways. I started this week feeling hopeful, but also um, shocked, honestly. I mean, this week, you know, we heard President Obama say Black Lives Matter and, and put out uh, in a list of organizations that you can take action with. The, the work that Black Lives Matter is doing is important in this moment. And he actually names the movement for Black Lives. He names the Black Futures Lab. And I say that not to name check our organizations. I say it to say, what a difference seven years has made. <laughs> um, there was a time that still is close to my heart uh, when we were saying Black Lives Matter and we were met with the refrain that all lives matter, that we were being you know, too, too radical, too visionary. We were pushing things too far and that really what we needed to do was to follow the system and to not be too disruptive and to not want too much change too fast. And in this moment, as I'm watching uh, rebellion sweep the country, um, I can't help but feel both heartened, right, by the dedication and the commitment that myself and thousands of organizers had and still have across the country to keep going, even though we were being told um, that we should not. With that being said, my heart is also broken because I don't fetishize what rebellion means or looks like. The reality is while people are rising up, while they are stepping forward to say, we have to change what's happening in this society, we're out here because once again, once again, a black person's life has been extinguished at the hands of the people who are supposed to keep us safe. And because we were not and still have not been listened to about not only what is happening in our communities, but the solutions that we know we need to implement now in order to change what's happening in our communities. Um, unfortunately, this is where we end up. Yes, yes. And as you, as you talk about you know, whether this moment is going to, to be a, a fundamentally different one, of course, it raises questions of whether a protest is going to be viewed uh, differently than it has in the past, and Black protest in particular. So I was struck, and I'm sure many people were, um, by the claim that Trump made um, that uh, the protest was being promoted by uh, Antifa's and the Antifa's are uh, terrorists. Now, of course, um, he has no authority uh, to declare them to, to be uh, terrorists, and the FBI has disclaimed any evidence 
uh, that uh, Antifa has been playing a role in what has been uh, denounced by Trump as the violence and the protests, but um, there is something familiar uh, about this effort. F the FBI has adopted the threat designation of a new category called Black Identity Extremism, and they have placed it on par with the Klan and other countless organizations. Now, this is breathtaking, right? Um, Anti-racist activists are basically demanding for the police to stop killing black people with impunity. They're placed in the same category as white supremacists, individuals and organizations that have actually killed more people than all foreign terrorism that's happened on American soil. So this is not though historically unprecedented. When you experience this and you see black identity extremism, how does that sit with you? What does that bring up for you? Well, you know, it brings up a lot for me. And, um, you know, my sister Patrice, she wrote a book called When They Call You a Terrorist. And the real uh, impact of what it means to attempt to surveil and control a movement that is fighting for the liberation and freedom of all of us because we deeply understand that when black people have a chance to get free, everybody has a chance to be a little bit more free. And when I look at what's happening with the designation of Antifa uh, as a terrorist organization, a domestic terrorist organization, I can't help but remember that first and foremost, um, there's a long pattern, right, of trying to suppress unrest in this country by declaring unrest an enemy of the state. But more than that, I think we have to be mindful that it is always used as a useful distraction at a time of great change. Uh, during the time of, of Black Power, right, uh, the Black Panther Party was, was targeted by the government, surveilled, uh, infiltrated, agitated to turn against each other. It's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. As the movement is coming to a height, suddenly we start to see these categories about Black identity extremists. And now with Antifa, which if people don't know, just stands for anti-fascist, and it is not an organization, this is a, a framework, right, that exists in a moment where we are careening towards fascism. And so the question that I think we all need to ask ourselves right now is, are we going to allow ourselves to be caught up in narratives that are not our own? But also it's an opportunity for us to decide where we stand and what side of history do we stand? We don't have to ask ourselves who we would have been during the last period of civil rights. In fact, you got to ask yourself who you would have been seven years ago. And right now you get to ask yourself who you would have been. Yes, yes. And you know, I think for, for some of our younger listeners, they may be uh, unaware of the fact that Martin Luther King uh, was targeted. Uh, as the most dangerous man in America. Why? Because he was a warrior for racial justice. Racial justice has a long history of being framed as opposite of American interests. And that uh, history extends to today, to this notion of black identity extremists. Just to put a point, to be labeled a black identity extremist, all you have to do is believe that America is a white supremacist order and the police are a part of that. You have to take an action. You don't have to advocate for violence. All you have to do is believe that. Whereas to be labeled a dangerous organization that is uh, a white supremacist, you have to believe in, the, in white supremacy. You have to actually 
actively call for white supremacy. So the asymmetry goes to the core uh, of how law enforcement has viewed black activism. So on that front, I, I want to dig a little deeper into this historical context with my uh, colleague Robin Kelly. I guess um, a, a big a hole in people's understanding is that race riots have historically been riots against black people. We're looking at the 99th anniversary of one of the worst massacres in American history. So with your historical lens, help us fill the void that we're seeing repeated over and over again, particularly uh, in, in mainstream coverage. Right. Well, thank you. Um, and by the way, I am a black identity extremist, apparently. Um, I think we probably all are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing it's important to realize is that the history of race riots in America are primarily histories of racial pogroms. That is violent attacks, looting, murder, mayhem directed at black communities, black businesses, black churches, black homes. Uh, we can go back to Cincinnati in the 1830s. Uh, you could talk about Chicago, uh, 1919. You could talk about East St. Louis. Um, you could talk, about, I mean, there's a whole list. Uh, Springfield, Illinois. Uh, and if you just count the numbers of bodies, the amount of property destroyed and stolen, um, we're talking about an, an amount that would far exceed the amount of damage done in, in the period from 64 to 72, when you had 300 cities on fire uh, and 60,000 people arrested. So I think it's important to recognize that. And also, in the case of Tulsa, as we're celebrating the 99th or commemorating 99th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, how important these acts of mob violence were for maintaining not just white supremacy, but for actually maintaining the state. These are all state sanctioned. Uh, the police played a role in facilitating, organizing, and leading some of these uh, pogroms against black people. And this is not just the antebellum period, but we're talking about uh, an, an acceleration of this kind of violence in the postbellum period. One other thing I would add to that is that um, these attacks are not simply grounded in trying to appropriate property or destroy black bodies. That's definitely the case. Um, they were political, uh, direct political forms of violence. Uh, they were violence directed at organizations attempting to vote, attempting to maintain autonomy, attempting to hold land, uh, and more importantly, attempting to run for office, hold office uh, during Reconstruction, after Reconstruction, in parties that were largely Black-led, but also multiracial at the time. And at the same time, I, I just, I can hear uh, listeners saying, Yes, we all we know all that 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 was then, but this is now. We're we're in a fundamentally different moment, and you know, violence is just violence. Uh, law and disorder is law and disorder. Trying to put the racial overlay, you know, on it to some people, I think, is uh, a, a stretch. You see so much consternation about attacks on on property, about how shameful it is that buildings have to be boarded up on Madison Avenue and Beverly Hills. And so while there is this consternation about, you know, assaults on buildings and on property, the violence of the state, the violence of police, the, the violence against um, peaceful protesters, the violence against journalists, all this seems to equate the 
concern about the destruction of human life with the, with the destruction of property, even if it's an equivalence. And many times it's not. It really seems like people are more upset about what's happening uh, on Madison Avenue or Beverly Hills. So are, are there ways that this false equivalency can be understood with historical analogs to help us see more clearly just how order uh, and protection of property is part of a fundamental logic that's been there since the beginning of the Constitution that places property ahead of freedom, ahead of liberty, and specifically ahead of the well-being of Black people. Right, right. In all the requests I get from media, almost everyone asks the same question, why is your looting? You know, so looting becomes the operative term. Looting is only defined in terms of property damage, which is treated as violence, you know, like ipso facto violence. And so what ends up happening is that you have this kind of dichotomy between um, those who are sort of the good protesters, uh, the peaceful law abiding versus the bad protesters bent on violence and destruction and therefore ergo the, um, the, the looters. Those people who end up being identified as quote unquote looters are criminalized and of course racialized. We've seen the way that looting and looters get defined both during Hurricane Katrina, for example, um, and certainly in almost all civil disturbances get defined as black. Uh, but the, the looting of our communities ends up not being considered, let, let alone the, the death and destruction, the violence, let alone the fact that we're talking about tens of thousands of people murdered. In fact, m murdered in the 19th century, let alone in the, in the 20th and 21st century, tens of thousands of people murdered uh, without compunction, without, with impunity uh, by police and by vigilantes. Um, but when we start looking at what do we mean by, by looting, we can talk about the looting of thousands of acres of land by the state, the loss of land and property, being looted of our tax revenue when we're paying for taxes for white supremacy and for um, segregated um, institutions. We could talk about the looting of black property through redlining, slum clearance, federal rating um, systems. We can even talk about the looting of black tax uh, revenue through municipalities that use fees and fines. And through those fees and fines that are overrepresented, we know about this for Ferguson, we know this for St. Louis, Minneapolis, we see the transfer of money, which then goes to municipal coffers that pay out for settlements on police misconduct cases. You know, with cities uh, like Minneapolis paying $21 million over several years, or Chicago, half a billion dollars um, over several years. My own city of Los Angeles, um, I think it was $880 million at one point uh, over a 10-year period uh, for wrongful uh, death or police misconduct cases. So. Looting is going on all the time. It just doesn't look like, you know, the, the looting of stealing shoes or breaking into Walgreens. Um, but once again, all this demonstrates what the question suggests, and that is that black life does not come close to the value of a store window, you know? Uh, and we saw this with Khalif Browder, where a backpack, the, the contents of a backpack was worth more than his life. Yeah. And you know, for, for those who uh, want to know more about what you've just mentioned, Robin, the use of the criminal justice system and policing to basically put the, the, the black community in Ferguson in the position of being their ATM 
Whenever they needed to increase revenues, they increased fines and fees. And um, that, of course, increased the policing. This is part of the Justice Department's Ferguson report. It was uh, the report that was subsequently effectively withdrawn by the Trump administration. And of course, we can't forget that for Black people, uh, seeking freedom uh, was at one point in our history when we were enslaved, the crime was theft. We were stealing ourselves. You know, seeking freedom was stealing, right? So um, what counts as stealing, what counts as looting is against a backdrop of where property uh, is actually constituted. And that has been racially constituted, uh, as my colleague Cheryl Harris has written um, throughout our history here. So Maria, I've been seeing so many posters, um, so many memes linking the death of Eric Garner to the death of George Floyd and, and bringing them together with their haunting last words, I can't breathe. One might have added to that litany of words, the words of your sister, Kayla Moore, whose last words were also, I can't breathe. Or we might add the haunting words of Natasha McKenna, whose last words were, you promised you wouldn't kill me. So as an activist for justice for your sister and as part of the broader family of women of Say Her Name, all of whom are fighting both against the loss of their daughters and sisters to police violence, but also against the erasure of their loss, the loss of that loss. What's coming up for you in this moment? Yeah, it's, it's very emotional right now. Hearing those words, I can't breathe, just brought up everything for me in terms of what Kayla was going through that night. A wellness call that turned into her untimely death. And what did she do? She didn't do anything wrong. She committed no crime. She was in a mental health uh, state of mind. She thought she was seeing things that, she, uh, that weren't there. But she was just in her own world. You know, there, there was actually no need for the police to come at all. But those cops, when they came to her door, they saw her and they didn't see her as a person. They saw her as an it. And that's, that's typically how the police view black people and especially, you know, Kayla being transgender. They didn't see her as human and they didn't take the time to talk to her. You know, these were officers that were called for a wellness check. And what they did to her was they tried to basically arrest her. You know, they ran a warrant check on her. The first thing that they did before they even spoke to her. And the warrant that came up was for someone who had her, her dead name. It was for a different date of birth. It was not a valid warrant, but they told her that she was going to jail and she panicked. The first thing they did was they, they all piled on top of her. So can you imagine you're in your home, you're cooking dinner, the cops come, and within minutes, you have six officers on top of you. And her last dying words were, I can't breathe. This is sort of what we've had to deal with um, for the past seven years. And what's so frustrating is since this time, we have been doing nothing but advocating, trying to get the city to make changes. We know this, it's common sense that officers should not be first responders to mental health crisis calls, period. They're not equipped to do it. They have what's called crisis intervention training. And it sounds very nice, but what it is, it's a one day 
eight-hour course that officers take to learn to de-escalate to handle people who are in crisis. That's absolutely unacceptable. You wouldn't go to see a doctor who took, you know, an online class for one day to become a doctor. You just wouldn't do it. So we need to start having less cops at these mental health scenes, but we also need more social workers and psychologists out there. We don't need cops to be the ones, the first responders to have to talk to people who or to de-escalate. We, they're not capable of this at this time. Right, right. And, you know, I just want to, to lift up uh, the work of um, our, our sister and say her name, Fran Garrett, whose daughter, Michelle Cousseau, uh, was killed when police came for a pickup order. You know, she was safely in her own home, did not want to uh, leave. The police officer uh, shot her because he said the look on her face made him fear for his life. The look on her face. Uh, Natasha McKenna, um, a, a black woman in custody who was killed when six hazmat uniformed white cops brought her out of the cell. She was nude had her handcuffed to the cell door, then handcuffed to the restraining chair, then hooded, and then she was tased three times. And like your sister, um, they seemed to not even notice that she was not breathing or care. So, you know, her case was raised again for me, and, and I'm sure for you as well, um, in thinking about your sister, when I heard on, on the transcript of the killing of George Floyd, one of the officers saying something about uh, this excited delirium. I mean, he actually quoted the idea of excited delirium. And the first time I encountered excited delirium was in the autopsy of Natasha McKenna. And I was like, what the heck is, what, what is this excited delirium? So. Maria, what is excited delirium and how does this play a role in e making it difficult to even establish that a homicide has occurred? Yeah, it's a way of blaming the victim for their death. And it, excited delirium is not real. It's, this is something that is made up. So basically, there's this surge of adrenaline that rushes to the brain and the heart and the, the person basically just miraculously dies. And we know that's not the case. That this is not proven, it's not science, it, it's, it's just a way to justify the killing and to take accountability from the officers um, in the scene. So they tried to blame Kayla because she was obese. You know, they, there's all these tools that the police have in their toolbox to always justify these killings. Um, at appellate court, uh, Kayla's case, the lawyer, City of Berkeley, made it a point to say how, and during the autopsy, that the person, the coroner never saw a heart that big. Like she was a walking, you know, heart attack, you know, I, I, I mean, but she actually said this in court and it just amazed me that, no, it wasn't her heart that killed her. It was the officers suffocating the life out of her. It was that cop who didn't want to give her CPR when she died. You know, the cop didn't want to put her mouth on Kayla's. There's, there's so, um, so much to it. So Maria, thank you so much for your, your leadership, your willingness to consistently fight for justice, not only for Kayla, but for so many other Black women who were killed by the police. We're never going to stop saying Kayla's name, lifting up her story, and remembering her life. 
I want to now turn to Devin Carbato just to give us a sense of sort of the silent backdrop. I mean, we've been talking about this largely as though we're dealing with, you know, either uh, exceptional cases uh, of harm from policing. Uh, sometimes, you know, we move more into a structural understanding, but it's all against sort of this backdrop uh, that assumes that the, that the law is you know, somehow not actively facilitating in this moment. Um, so what are the facilitative dimensions uh, of the law as it's playing out that needs to be um, understood more clearly? So thank you uh, very much, Kim, for uh, bringing us together and uh, for the really important programming that the Policy Forum has put on over the past few months. Um, so this is a really difficult moment in which to find one's uh, oppositional voice. And I'm not one who's typically lost for words, but, but this is really a, a hard moment. And uh, part of the difficulty just has to do with the fact that, you know, you're sick and tired of the same old frames. And uh, one of the frames that uh, sometimes circulated is about the bad cop apple. I don't think I need to explain uh, to anyone who's on this line why that might be problematic. What I want to do is remind us of something I think we all know, that the kinds of uh, racial subordination and acts of state violence to which Black people are routinely subjected are not extra legal always. Many of uh, those forms of violence are constitutionalized. Slavery was constitutionalized. Jim Crow was constitutionalized. Mass incarceration is constitutionalized. Stop and frisk is constitutionalized. I think we need to recognize that the problem of state violence against Black people is not a rule of man problem. It is also a rule of law problem. And you can see that um, in very distinct ways if you focus in on a few areas of law. So let's say we thought about the Fourth Amendment. This sanitized language is precisely what courts interpret to determine the precarious line between stopping Black people and killing Black people. This is where it happens. So if you want to think about stop and frisk, you got to talk about the Fourth Amendment. If you want to think about excessive force, you got to talk about the Fourth Amendment. If you want to think about um, traffic stops, pedestrian stops, you have to talk about the Fourth Amendment, except we're not doing that. Fourth Amendment is the constitutional domain in which we work out whether use of force is excessive, whether stops and frisk is legitimate, whether uh, driving while black is unconstitutional, et cetera. You name a police problem that you want to talk about, and I'll say, go to the Fourth Amendment. And yet, it's not a part of our public consciousness. There's just something deeply wrong with that. And yet, it's not being talked about. It's not the go-to, um, even when, when we're in this moment of marching. So one can look at the sea of you know, chants and demands and posters, and I would guess that you'd be hard-pressed to find anything that says, you know, um, expand the Fourth Amendment or, you know, change the Supreme Court. Uh, people don't see it as a, a site of, of resistance. So I'm wondering um, what would we need to know, for example, um, about the vulnerability that Brianna experienced? What does the Fourth Amendment uh, do or say to protect? or should have been able to protect Brianna. It looks like it is a home invasion. It just happens to be one with a badge. 
So where is the connection um, that we need to know between the Fourth Amendment and this moment? Well, I think Brianna's case is really important for us to talk about, uh, not just because her life mattered, it clearly did, not just because doing so allows our conversation to be more gender inclusive, it would, but because her case puts into sharp relief dimensions of race and gender and police power that again, um, are not always robustly a part of our collective consciousness. So here are just four lessons that we might learn from her case that are really important. One, so her case is about warrants, uh, a no-knock warrant. So one thing we need to know, it seems to me, is that the fact that police officers might have warrants doesn't make their policing warranted. In other words, you can have unwarranted policing with warrants. The Fourth Amendment requires warrants to have probable cause. So what does probable cause mean? Does it mean 70%? No. Does it mean 30? Maybe. It's somewhere between 25 and 30%. That's a really low threshold. So when cops have warrants, they have 25 to 30% likelihood that you've done something wrong. Second, Warrant says that things must be particularly described. People must be particularly described. Are black people typically particularly described? Or are we just black in these particular documents? The other thing I want to say is about no-knock warrants themselves. And this point is important. It turns out that police officers already operate under something like a no-knock warrant regime. What do I mean by that? So the Supreme Court has made two rulings that are relevant on this point. One. Let's say that an officer doesn't knock and announce their presence into a particular house. They can say the reason they didn't do so was because the circumstances were exigent. So they had an emergency excuse. The court has also said, let's assume that an officer doesn't have an emergency justification, gets into your house, didn't knock and announce, so we're stipulating there's a constitutional problem. The officer still gets to use the evidence that they obtain from that no-knock entry. Because what's layered on top, it goes to the bad cop narrative. Because what, what gets layered on top is, you violate the constitution, that's kind of itsy-bitsy bad. You have to do something a lot worse than that now to justify the suppression of evidence. And violating the no-knock rule, that's not sufficiently bad to serve as a predicate. The third thing is this, police officers routinely make mistakes with warrants. So a cop has a warrant to search A person's house. They search B person's house. What happens after the fact? They said it was a mistake. Courts typically conclude that those mistakes are reasonable, particularly if person A is black and person B is black. I'm being a little hyperbolic on that point, but you get the idea. The same language of reasonableness that authorizes um, killing of people is the same language of reasonableness that authorizes getting in, making mistakes, and justifying it after the fact. So, so that should be triggering for you because reasonable suspicion is the standard that emerged in the context of stop and frisk. Stop and frisk becomes constitutional in 1968 in much the same scene of unrest that we're witnessing now when the man who uh, wrote uh, Brown v. Board of Education, Justice Earl Warren, decides that police officers can stop and frisk you if they have reasonable suspicion to believe that you're armed and dangerous. Stop and frisk or the logic of reasonable suspicion didn't shelter in place just there. It's moved to cover a broad swath of Fourth Amendment um, laws. Concrete examples, and I really will shut up. One, 
You can stop and frisk cars, believe it or not. You can stop and frisk homes. You can stop and frisk luggage. You can apply reasonable suspicion to stop someone based on their immigration status. You can uh, base your reasonable suspicion as to whether or not someone's undocumented by asking, does the person appear Mexican looking? Appear, appear. So racial, basically race can be used as a factor. Explicitly as a part of constitutional law. And the regime of reasonable suspicion also applies at the border. So black women for the longest have been subject to stop and strip at the border based on reasonable suspicion. So again, there are lots of ways in which if we drill down on Brianna's case, we don't just learn about the particular impact of policing on black women. We learn about the structure of policing and power more generally, which is why I think we need to think about the space that opens up when we ask the intersectionality question. And this is a moment in which I think this case helps put the Fourth Amendment on the table in a way that it hasn't been forever. Yes, yes. Um, so broadening our understanding of what anti-Black police violence looks like casts our attention not just to policing per se, but to law that plays a facilitative role in making this happen. Thank you, Devin, for uh, making this so uh, clear to us. So there are some uh, themes that I kind of want to pick up on that you've hinted at and uh, we know are significant. And um, I'm going to start with Alicia. So Alicia, as, as we know, you and, and your sisters in struggle created a space to assert, to demand that Black Lives Matter. But there are also factors uh, that shape what you were struggling against and that shape the struggle inside of the movement. So I wonder if you might help us think about how patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, how they're not only the problem that we're fighting in the discourse, uh, but they're also uh, problems that we're fighting within our movement. So what are some of the frustrations you've had? Oh man, well, where do we even start here? <laughs> Kim and I have had many a conversation about this. Many. You know, and I, I just will say um, that as we speak, you know, I get questions from people all the time about why do we have to talk about gay people? This is about black people, as if black people are not also gay or lesbian or bisexual, as if black people are not also trans um, or gender non-conforming. And I think in a lot of ways, we have adopted stories about ourselves that we know deeply from our experience is not who we are. <laughs> we do have to lift up the names of people like Tony McDade. We have to lift up the names of people like Breonna Taylor not just to say names. I mean, I, I have lost track of the litany, but I can say that what becomes important about this is that it helps us understand why this violence is happening in our communities. We know that um, each of us is targeted differently, but that is also by design. It is also by design that those of us who fall outside of the parameters of the gender binary are, are attacked, right, in layers of ways 
for daring to um, break out of that mold, um, for daring to not even just, it's not an ideological thing. It's like a daring to live on your own terms. And Black people have always fought to live on our own terms, and yet we still have this challenge of, um, even within our own communities, uh, using antiquated um, notions of who gets to live on their own terms and whose terms should be decided by somebody else. So that's a frustration. And, you know, I, I wish there was a gay agenda because I would sign up for it. I feel like <laughs> we as a community actually deserve that too. Um, yeah, the other thing yeah. I just want to add here though, Kim, is that the other frustration, frankly, is that we continue to look for avatars rather than to celebrate and lift up um, the people who are showing us the way. I cannot tell you over the last couple of weeks, I'm like reliving all of the, the things that we have been dealing with for seven years, people in my inbox. I'm gonna tell you the strategy that you need to make this movement successful and it's always a man. <laughs> <laughs> 100% all the time, always a man. And now I'm documenting because y'all ain't going to drive me crazy. <laughs> um, you know, um, mansplaining the movement, huh? Yeah, like all of these ways in which people say, well, where are the leaders? But the reason that people don't feel like they can find who the leaders are is because they're looking for a Martin Luther King. They are looking for mm. the man who speaks for everybody, right? And looking for the congregation that has circled around them. Martin Luther King is not coming back. He has been dead for a long time. And you know, he's not coming back. But you know who is here? Queer women, trans folks, uh, uh, folks who are gender nonconforming, and our brothers are here. There's so many of us that make up the front, right, that is pushing this country to actually live up to what it's been promising it could be since it was incepted. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, on, that, on that theme, I want to go back to uh, Maria. When Brianna was killed, her mother entered into a group that you all have called the Sisterhood of Sorrow, the Say Her Name families. Um, you all prepared a video, it was sort of a video greeting of sorts to mothers who were not yet in your group, not yet experiencing the thing that you experience. And, and that's what I mean when I say the Sisterhood of, of Sorrow, the experience. Why was it important to all of you to do that? And what are, what are some of the, you know, sort of the consequences of the loss and the loss of the loss, the, the failure to speak the names of, of so many of your loved ones that drives you all, that drives Say Her Name? You know, there's no handbook that tells you how to get through this. It's one of the worst experiences uh, these women, these mothers have gone through. And when we're together, we are a family. I've come to love these women and we just share that bond um, so deeply. And I can't say enough about them because every time I'm with them, I get my batteries recharged. And I think we all do. And, you know, making that video, looking back at it, I realized how important it was, um, especially knowing that video was going to go out to people who had just lost their loved one. And to hear the mothers talk about their experiences, but also wanting to support 
I, it just had me in tears because it it just meant so much in the moment because any family member that listens to what they're saying will know that they're going to have someone, people there who will be there for them, that they're not alone. You're not alone in this because, and I know that families and mothers and parents are feeling this way, but you know, there's a place where you can go where you have support. And I think that video was just so incredibly powerful. And I, like I said, this is my crew. I love them so much. Um, we, we all keep in touch and I can't wait till the next time we're together because it's that special. And, um, you know, shout out to all of the mothers and sisters uh, of Say Her Name who are reaching out, who have reached out, who, as, as you said, Maria, there's not a handbook, but, but there, there are loving arms. There's the knowing that only you all can experience in name and touch. Robin, I want to come back to you as a historian of race and class. You've been part of debates for decades, and uh, most recently those debates have come to a head again as to the role that race can or should play in uh, a politic that robustly addresses class questions. And it seems as though, you know, as uh, General Ellison said, that one particularly ripe site for thinking about some of the uh, limitations of the frame that class politics, that union politics are in, in some ways, don't need a racial lens or a racial angle to fully understand and move through it. And so we talked uh, at the beginning of the show and then there were some uh, slides about how the uh, union president of uh, the Minneapolis police not only said, you know, they support Trump because he takes the handcuffs off. He also said he shot three people. He doesn't feel bad about it at all. What is it that history might help us think about the relationship between policing and race and gender politics that, that play out within labor and in particular within police labor? Right. Well, police unions are hardly unions in the sense of you know, they may be working, but they're not really unions in the traditional sense. Um, if anything, um, you, you have to remember that one of the most interesting and dangerous police riots uh, took place in New York City when, you know, Mayor Lindsay, you know, decided that maybe we need uh, some kind of oversight, you know, committee to look at police. And they literally, when the Black Panther Party was on trial, uh, the police union staged a riot and started beating up people, beating up Panthers as they're walking into the courthouse. So these are not unions, these are basically thugs that represent, in some respects, public employees who really do represent, you know, Trump's base. The base for Trump is kind of a historic block, a political block comprised of right-wing elements and a portion of a kind of disaffected a white working class, some of whom had voted for Obama before, and the public employee workers who are in police unions and in um, uh, unions uh, that are um, guard unions for prisons, for prisons. And what's interesting is that they're not benefiting from uh, the Trump bump. You know, they're not benefiting financially. They're not benefiting in any other way except for the resources available to them. And as General Ellison said, this is a union that hates its clients in some respects, it hates the, the public, the black public. And so police unions in some ways represent 
a kind of exclusionary, racist, I would also say part of the, uh, the Trump strategy of repressive violence. You know, they represent that. And what's interesting is that those who are arguing for kind of class politics ignore the fact that um, it's white identity politics that put Trump in office in the first place. Um, and that the, the identity politics that gets marked as disrupting the potential for class alliance is the identity politics that's deeply anti-racist, that's deeply anti-sexist, that's deeply anti-homophobic uh, and anti-transphobic. I mean, these are the, the organizations that actually open up the pathway for a class politics that could be more robust. But police unions in particular are those that actually operate in, in very opposite ways. They represent a force of, of repression and violence and part of their contracts often are contracts that protect them uh, from prosecution. Yeah, yeah. And, and provide them resources and processes that make it that much more difficult to uh, fully investigate cases. Um, Alicia, I know you're doing another webinar, so let me give the floor first to you to help us think about what is the meantime stuff that we ought to be doing? Where should the energies be directed? What are you excited about in terms of possibilities moving forward? Well, I was really happy to hear today that the case in Minnesota is moving forward. And I think that we need to make sure that we keep eyes on what's happening there. Um, we need to make sure that uh, that, that state um, feels like the nation is watching and like it will set precedent for what is happening across the country. And we know uh, with the leadership of Attorney General Keith Ellison uh, that we will certainly have a robust process and he's gonna need our support and our eyes as well. So that's something that I think is important. The other thing that I just wanna say here in terms of next steps is, you know, the thing that I long for the most is that we take this opportunity not to satiate ourselves with short-term solutions um, that don't actually address the root of the problem, that we are patient with each other enough that we are willing to chart that path together, and that we are courageous enough and we believe in ourselves enough to know that we deserve better than temporary solutions, right? That we actually can have um, safety and security in our communities that um, don't rely on badges and guns to provide it. That we can move around resources um, and the way that we are using resources right now to make sure that we are right-sizing the role um, that police are playing in our communities, but that we are using the resources that we are uh, diverting to policing and diverting those resources right back to where they were stolen from in the first place. Mental health services, domestic violence services, uh, shelters for people without homes, education, uh, increasing jobs, right, by actually employing our people to hold our communities the way that people did before uh, presidents like Ronald Reagan began to dismantle the safety net. So that is my plea for us, that we are courageous enough to say we actually deserve a lot more than things like body cameras. We can have the things that we've longed for for a long time, and it's right at our fingertips if we'll just stay focused. And Alicia, if we want to know priorities, where do we look? 
well. You can definitely go and check out colorofchange.org for some immediate things that you can do in terms of keeping the pressure on the case in Minnesota. But you can also go to our website at blackfutureslab.org to learn more about the Black Agenda for 2020 and beyond. All right, thank you, Alicia. Thank you for joining us. Devin Carvato, so I think you've opened a lot of eyes to what is sort of in the background, but actually shaping so much of what we're protesting now. And I think a, a lot of folks, particularly you know, folks who are, are unaware of the risk of no-not warrants, don't live in neighborhoods where they have to worry about uh, the police knocking down the door. Uh, people who believe that their Second Amendment rights you know, give them the right to defend themselves, not fully being aware that uh, there's Second Amendment rights for some people and there's racial realities for others. With all of that, um, what is it that you want to encourage people to think about, to learn about, to be able to talk about? So I think I'll just stop by saying, I think this really is uh, a moment in which to not acquiesce in the short-term reformism. I think that's crucial. There's a way in which one could easily reproduce the same set of agenda items that were put on the table post-Ferguson. So I totally co-sign what Alicia just says, that this is not the moment to do precisely that. The second thing I would say is that um, arguments about rogue this or rogue that uh, push back against them. There's lots and lots of moments in which we're going to hear uh, different kind of claims about illegal behavior. And it's important because the cases that are being litigated now involves illegal behavior, but don't lose sight of the moments of legality that don't end up in courts. Our history is filled with legalized acts of violence. Our problem has not just been extra legal, it's been legal. And so we need to not um, forget about that sensibility in this moment and recognize that the entire architecture uh, that um, produced this moment, much of it is thoroughly constitutional. Thank you. Thank you so much, Devin. Robin, you, you've been in it, you've been on it throughout your entire career, and yet here we are again. What do you want to leave people with? What parts of history can be uh, mobilized in this moment to, to help it be perhaps the galvanizing moment that we're, we're most hoping that it could possibly be. I'm hard by the fact that there's so many organizations, the Movement for Black Lives just put out a new set of demands, building on the COVID-19 demands, they have a, a week of action. The rising majority has been doing amazing work both around police violence, healthcare, electoral politics, mobilizing at a national level, and especially in Chicago. Um, there's a lot going on, and I think that this is a very exciting time. In terms of history, the one thing I would go back to is just to do what you always do so well, and that is make sure we're always attentive to the way in which uh, gender shapes uh, police violence and shapes our response to it. So one of the areas that we need to pay attention to with respect to Breonna Taylor is the issue of home invasion. Uh, and see home invasion as uh, not just about the castle doctrine, but about the historical and ongoing right of the police state to invade black homes, specifically uh, affecting black women, black women's homes. Many black women have been killed as a result of home invasion with impunity. And so we have to pay attention to that. Thank you, Robin. 
Oh, one last thing. Yes, yeah, sure. Sarah Haley is doing this work, and I just want to hold her up. My colleague at UCLA, read her work. And we'll drop links to it for uh, that and other information. Maria. So my message to everyone listening, um, you know, mobilize and organize. I think now is the time. There's never been a better time, but get involved, you know. Um, there are many times where we went to city council meetings and we, we shut it down. We let them know what our agenda was, what we want them to do. But you have to get out there. You have to, um, you, you know, create your own, you know, cop watch group, whatever it is in your community that you can do to support each other. Because, uh, you know, right now it's it's very stressful trying times, but we need to come together. We need to be able to get our point across in a way that people will listen to. And, you know, we're doing this as a community and within your community, within your neighborhood, within your, you know, your street, just organize and come together because we, we have to do, do more than what we're doing right now. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us. And of course, a very, very special thank you to our panelists, Alicia Garza, Devin Carbato, Robin D.G. Kelly, Maria Moore, and of course, Attorney General Keith Ellison. Intersectionality Matters is produced by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was edited by Julia Sharp Levine and Sarah Ventry. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.